everyone, and welcome to the Actually Autistic Podcast. Today, I have as my guest, Constantine Anthony. Constantine Anthony is on the Burbank Advisory Council on Disabilities, and he is a main stage player at Comedy Sports in Los Angeles. And he's also a brilliant researcher, too. And I highly recommend that you all follow this amazing person. Hello, Constantine. Hello, Rachel. You had a really interesting theory in terms of the way brains work, and it certainly resonates with my personal experience with how it feels to be autistic. Oh, yeah. Well, first and foremost, a lot of the research right now on autism and its causes is focused in some sort of um, medical diagnoses. We look at the symptoms of autism and we try to treat those symptoms as though they're causes. So like mm-hmm. every autistic person I know has a litany of uh, hypersensitivity, right? Whether it's light or sound or touch or even gastrointestinal sensitivity, right? Very, very mm-hmm. sensitive stomachs. And so you have so many people coming across it like, oh, there's something wrong with the gut flora and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, guys, that's just a symptom. So you know, all of these millions and millions of dollars of research coming from, you know, less than uh, scrupulous companies like Autism Speaks or other cure-based groups, TACA, talk about curing autism. They focus on those research to, you know, find the causes and it's in the, it's in the stomach, it's in the toxins, it's in the vaccine. It's not. We know it's not. All of that research has fraught, you know, nothing. It's, it's, right. it's terrible. It produces zero results. And so for me, I, like many autistics, I have a thousand different jobs because mm-hmm. I can't hold down a regular day job. Right. So <laughs> I do a million different things. And one of my uh, multitude of occupations is working in medical research and development, uh, specifically mm. human testing. So I do a lot of work with double-blind studies and learning the, the methodology and that kind of thing. And so I came across an interesting piece of research a few years back they did cross-sections of deceased folks and they went into their brains and they looked at people who were diagnosed autistic and a control group, same age, people who weren't. And what they noticed was autistics had extra dendrites, had thicker dendritic connections in their brain. And so then they did more research on processing and they went into the way the brain develops those dendrite connections. And what they found was that a higher number of autistics have slower dendritic pruning. And I'll get into what that means. Well, let's take a, let's take a moment and talk about what a dendrite is. Sure, sure. So first and foremost, the dendrite is, how you, is what connects the neurons in your brain. We know that a memory is, it's not a tangible thing in your brain. It sort of lives in this quantum state where the path electricity takes through the brain is the memory. So Mm -hmm. that a memory doesn't exist in a static form. It's actually when the neurons are fired in a specific pattern through a specific pathway through the brain, that's a memory. That's a thought. That's an emotion, a feeling, Mm -hmm. right? The brain has these pathways that it creates. And to make those paths, to make the jump from neuron to neuron, we have dendrites that connect our brain through this interweb of connections. So okay, hold on, whenever just you a make sec. new memories. Just a sec. Can you hear those dogs? <laughs> Are those your dogs? Yes. 
my god. How many dogs do you have? Only three. <laughs> only, only three. They're small. Mm. That's funny. Okay, somebody made them <laughs> shut up. Let's go back where we were with the dendrites, and it's a pattern through yeah. the memory. The dendrite is just a connection between those neurons. It's mm-hmm. like the telephone line between two points, basically. Exactly. And exactly. so what you're saying is that autistic people, according to this research, had more of them and it took longer for those dendrites, it took longer for those to be pruned. Is that the deal? Yeah. So normally, if you don't use a thought or a memory, that dendrite never gets an electrical impulse through it mm-hmm. and it slowly decays and dies over time. Mm. What we found is that autistics have, through some reason or another, a slower rate of that decay. So our memories are better, like Mm. our long-term memory is much better. Mm -hmm. And the interconnections between neurons, there's just more of them. If you're Mm -hmm. not pruning from day one, then just over time, you're going to start to amass more and more dendrites than a neurotypical person would. And what happens is because we know that memories, sensations, feelings, emotions, thoughts, all travel along these same paths and reuse dendrites over and over and over again, we have a lot more crossover. One of my favorite statistics is that synesthesia is much higher occurrence in the autistic mind than in the neurotypical mind. And that follows right into that hypothesis that this is the result of slow dendritic pruning. We're getting emotions crossed with thought and we're getting feelings crossed with fact and it blends together. So for example, it's kind of synesthesia is that when you look at a number printed on a piece of page, it actually has a color assigned to it. Or when you hear music, you see colors or how certain words will have a taste to them. This is types of synesthesia. I have a form of synesthesia called number form synesthesia, where idea or a concrete set of rules and facts actually creates a 3D picture in my brain. So when I think about a year or an engine or the constitution, like I just did it three times in a row in my brain, Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's this three-dimensional pictograph that's separates it out and gives a schematic in my mind, just thinking about. Are you picturing the thing or are you picturing the word for the thing? It's neither. It becomes a physical, tactile thing. An engine is just a big block of metal, right? Right. But in my mind, when I think about an automobile engine, I can at the same time see all the parts moving and working and in sort of a three-dimensional representation. So is when I that think about synesthesia or is that being hypervisual? Well, it puts it into two different categories. See, One I, is, uh, it, it exists on a spectrum. I, I thought everybody did that. I thought everybody got those pictures in their head. <laughs> no, no. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, you know, I began to realize that, okay, well, maybe people can't take an object in their heads and manipulate it and turn it around and change it. But I really thought for years that everybody, at least when they said the word motor, got a little picture of a motor in their head. Mm, no. Nope. Like, wow. That, it's, no, I learned that. Yeah. I learned that a long time ago. Most people don't think that way. That, it's, that, it's just so trippy. And it explains mm-hmm. so much why those of us who do see those images in our head have such a difficult time talking to people mm-hmm. who don't. Because 
we're needing to translate all this extra information that we didn't yeah. realize that we needed to translate for. Temple Grandin's famous book was called Thinking in Pictures. She yeah. goes into detail how most people don't think that way. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just blows my, my poor little brain. How and when did you find out that you're autistic? So um, about 10, maybe 11 years ago, a friend of mine, an ex-girlfriend of mine actually, calls me up out of the blue. And she says to me, hey, I started doing summer camp with special needs kids. And I got put in charge of five little autistic boys and girls. And there's this one kid in this class, man. He reminds me exactly of you when we were that age. And I'm like, well, can you describe it and explain it to me? And she went on to tell me about his traits and how he interacts with people. And I thought to myself, well, that was an odd random phone call. But later on, I got to talking with her some more. And she had done a lot of work with uh, behavior intervention and child therapy. And she wasn't just some run-of-the-mill person off the street. She was an accredited source. It's what I figured (laughs) out. And so slowly over time, I started to see those words around, words like Asperger's and words like self-diagnoses. And, you know, once something is put in your brain, it kind of just sticks in there and worms itself around and uh, you keep seeing it all over the place. And then you start doing research on your own. So I went about the process of trying to get a diagnosis. And what I found back in 2008, 2009, was that it an adult trying to get a, a diagnosis was nearly impossible. All of the centers I went to, all of the doctors and psychologists I talked to, I say, hey, I need an autism diagnosis. They said, okay, how old is your kid? I'm like, no, no, <laughs> for me. And, you know, they didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. It was really tough. And so I started reaching out to places where autistics would gather. And of course, the first place I found was wrongplanet.net, as many Mm. folks my age grew up with. Now it's a little different. People get into Facebook groups and find Twitter and whatnot. But uh, yeah, back in the day, wrongplanet.net, man, that was the the spot. You know, it was this great forum that people could post on and talk about their experiences and give guidance on how to seek out a diagnosis what words you needed to use, what specific Mm. phrases would get you through the door to see an actual psychologist or therapist. And then separate from the whole medical diagnosis model, there were online tests. And the folks in that forum would rate these tests. They'd say, this is a good one. Don't do this one. Here's a really solid series of self-diagnoses forms that you can fill out and it'll give you a score and a rating and you can understand it. And it was immensely helpful. It was, it was fantastic to see all these folks helping you figure out who you are. Great community. Great community. Wrongplanet.net. Well, and, I, uh, unfortunately, I, I understand that it's gotten a little trollish lately. So I just want to caution my listeners, by all means, go check it out. As Constantine says, it's the first community ever for autistics online. Yeah. But it is a forum where people can be anonymous. So just like any forum like that, go ahead, go in there, but be mindful that if somebody's trying to wind you up, just block them. <laughs> just <laughs> block yes. them, get um, on with your life. <laughs> yeah, the old systems of online forums 
that was really popular in the late 90s and early 2000s that I grew up with have fallen accustomed to the trolling environment. And Mm -hmm. these trolls who try to make themselves sound cooler than they are, they're just an infighting group of self-attackers. And I I don't know, they found their way into everywhere. You know, modern social media, Facebook and Twitter, they're starting to figure out a way to combat this with community guidelines and, you know, blocking and reporting. But we're we're still far ways away from having an adequate safe space for people to just talk about who they are. Yeah, that's just the truth, no matter where you are online. So did you go through a process where you're thinking about all these memories and reassessing them in the light of this new knowledge about yourself? Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. My father was an avid user of the VHS recorder. I have just hours upon hours of home videos of me growing up. And and just the stark difference between me and my two siblings is it's so easily identifiable. And, you know, I grew of age where camcorders became more and more prevalent as the years went by. My, My older brother ended up getting that camcorder bug. And so through the late 90s in high school and in the early 2000s when we were, I was still living at home in college, he would have that thing out all the time. So I've got thousands of hours throughout my whole life where I can just watch videos of myself. Oh my gosh. And it's so apparent when you watch this kid who has no idea who he is just be himself. It's an amazing thing to behold that how... How could I have not known? How could the world not have known? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it was, we were that's blind to intense. it. We didn't have. That's intense because when I have to do my memory life review of all these events, nobody was recording me. It's all in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't have this completely external objective witness of a camera watching. That's phenomenal. I think there's a yeah. documentary in that for sure, Constantine. I, I, I think it's oh, time man. to slice and dice that together and yeah. give something wonderful to watch because that just sounds freaking amazing. I did find yeah. there's photographs of me. My dad's a photographer, so there's a lot of photographs of me. And I've always got my hair in my face. I've always got this funny posture. You know, it's obvious to me <laughs> now. And if I go someplace where there's a lot of kids, like a high school or a junior high, I can spot me immediately. I'm the one sitting in the weird pose on the floor with like to the side with my legs because a lot of us are hypermobile, which means that our bones and our joints are a little looser in our sockets Mm -hmm. than they normally are for most people. And And that can lead to all kinds of exciting things if you're the type of person who gets pregnant, as I was, Mm -hmm. and kind of plop down in the middle of the sidewalk once in a while. I had to have a cane at some point. It was very, very embarrassing. But anyway, so you found out that... One of the most common genetic disorders in um, the autistic community is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, EDS. Mm -hmm. And it's hypermobility. It makes our joints extra bendy. It makes our skin super soft. Mm -hmm. Um, All of these things. Uh, The other one that I personally have. It's called Erlane's syndrome, which is a processing disorder in your eyes. It makes you hypersensitive to light. It makes you see patterns on pages of books. Like if you ever look at a, at a page of a book and you can see all the white spaces in between. That's not normal. Those, <laughs> no, it's not neurotypical. You know, part yeah. of this is that I just diagnosed in November and Mm-hmm. So, you know, all my listeners are in the future. And so they may be listening to this years from now. But right now, it's uh, almost the end of March in 2019. And I have known for 
approximately four and a half months that I'm autistic. So every time that I get to talk to somebody in this podcast, I learn more things about myself that completely blow my mind. And that, yeah, that, yeah, that's I a big motivation for doing the podcast too, to, <laughs> to be truthful, because it's, it's such a wonderful way to get to talk to all these people who are way farther along this journey than I am. So one of the phrases that medical doctors use is comorbidity which yes. is such a horrifying term. Yeah. What we like to use is multiplicatively diagnosed. What I've seen from talking about even the earlier research, folks who have these specific genetic disorders, as they're mm-hmm. called, uh, Erlane syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos, Fragile X, what's happening in your 23 chrom- chromosomes is that the changes in the genetics for that specific diagnosis all work together in sort of this concert of changes. And once you have a specific set of these changes in your genetic code, that creates the slowing of the genetic of the, the dendritic pruning. Uh. So you you've got to have a mix of all of these little things to create a process to slow down that pruning to create the autistic mind. There's about, I think there's four or five genetic markers for the color of your eyes. And there's 13 or 14 for the color and texture of your hair and something like 50 or 55 for the color of your skin. So we know that specific genetics that come out at the end of the day, when you look at them, you really can't tell how many changes in the genetic code there are to produce that result. And so we we don't know how many codes there are for autism, Mm -hmm. Um, but there could be thousands and they're all within us, right? They're all latent genetic possibilities. So it's not like this is a new mutation. This is something that exists in humankind since the beginning. So it's there. It exists in all of us. So Wrong Planet was a great way for me to get in touch with people online, but I still, you know, craved that human interaction. I wanted to meet people like me. Mm-hmm. And so I got involved with the Autistic Self Advocacy Network. Yeah. And that was an amazing place because they had a branch here in Los Angeles. They've since been rebranded to the Los Angeles Neurodiversity, L-A-N-D, land. But at the time, it was a, a great meeting group because they would set places and times to actually interact with folks. And it was really interesting to me because I came in from it, I came into it from a standpoint of just wanting to learn about the autistic community, but the folks who'd been in it already had far more knowledge of the historical oppression of neurodivergent folks. And what I didn't realize at the time was that when I signed up for all these meetings, they were, more than half of them were protests. (laughs) And so I started going to Autism Speak fundraisers and having signs and booths to protest them and their organization. And then we would go to psychology conferences and protest their treatment of autism as a disorder. It was really eye-opening. Oh, yeah. You know, so when was this? Well, this was, we're talking 2010, 2011. Okay. I was just blown away by how active these folks were. And through them, 2012, 2013, I started getting involved with a lot of disability rights movements. So 
from the activism to fight back against uh, autistic oppression, I came in contact with folks who had medical conditions, mobility conditions, other types of illnesses and health needs that were not being addressed by corporations and governments and just being culturally seen as second-class citizens. So I got super involved in my local disability rights organizations and legal battles and stuff. And that led me 2015 to get involved with Hillary Clinton's campaign for president. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about her as a politician, she started really early on in disability rights. Um, uh, Historically, she's been very vocal about not just the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, but seeing people with disabilities as regular folk, not a second class. And so I got involved with her social media campaign. Cut to day after the uh, election, I fell into a slump. The next day I opened my phone and I remember it was like I awoke from a fever dream. I reached over and grabbed my phone and hit the Google bar and typed Burbank City election. And wouldn't you know it, the election was on Tuesday and the opening date to file for city council was Mm -hmm. the Monday before. So I talked to everyone I had worked with on her campaign. I asked uh, questions about their experiences running for local office. Thankfully, there was my team leader was the former mayor of Hermosa Beach. So he gave me some pointers on how to run uh, a local campaign, how to run an above board election, how not to go negative, how to reach out and build coalitions. And I took his advice and filed to run. And I got my 50 signatures in with four hours to spare at the Whoa. end of the, uh, the filing <laughs> date. Amazing. Yeah, That's it was amazing. a 30-day filing date. And I got it in. I went around all around town collecting Whoa. signatures and qualified for the ballot. And over the course of December, January, and February, was a candidate for city council in the city of Burbank. And it was really incredible. It was an experience like nothing I'd ever done or felt before, being able to just connect with people at the ground level. You Mm -hmm. knock on their door and they answer and say, who the hell are you? And you have X amount of minutes to just give them your life story and get them on board or not. And you would be amazed how likely people are to vote for you if you simply show up at their house and Mm -hmm. express to them a desire to do good. Mm -hmm. It's really that simple. People want to know that you will reach out to them. Most voters just want to be heard. So yeah, that was an incredible experience. And I got to know more about the city and the community that I live in Mm -hmm. um, faster and in a more in-depth way than simply living here, working here, shopping here. When you see how the sausages are made, then you understand the sausages quite a bit more, don't you? (laughs) Oh my goodness, yes. That's how it works. So you went through that experience, but did not become a councilman. Um, I lost in the primary, Uh but during the uh, general election, I focused all of my efforts to another candidate who was running, who was on the Birmingham Advisory Council on Disabilities before me. Uh And she was very progressive, and she had run previously and lost in the primary. Mm. And so... She kind of knew her way around, but she had made it past the first round of cut. We all banded together, me and my crew, to jump on board in her campaign. And she had already had an active campaign. Mm -hmm. And we we got her to topple one of the 
incumbent council members, and she ended up winning. And oh, that's um, wonderful, Constantine. Yeah. So, and Sharon, the, Sharon Springer uh, is now currently the vice mayor of Burbank. She's moved up. Oh wow! Hopefully, by the end of the year, she will be appointed mayor. So, do you feel like being autistic helped you to navigate that disappointment a little better? <laughs> no. Was it hard? <laughs> Yeah. I I mean I don't know I, I I fell into a funk for over a day. Um, I actually didn't I didn't that's pick up my phone. That's not bad, Constantine. That's not bad at all. I mean, <laughs> even if you if you had fallen into a funk for a month and that was it, I'd be impressed because mm-hmm. that just yeah. seems you know I I've never run for anything because I know that I couldn't take it. I just couldn't hack it. So even if I won, I don't think I could handle it. (laughs) But I have worked on other people's campaigns. And the disappointment when they lose is so crushing. And I'm just a volunteer. You know, I can't imagine what it must be like for the candidate themselves. So I really admire people who take that risk. And you came out of it and you did absolutely the right thing and took all your energy and experience to help somebody who would further your goals. So I think that's just freaking awesome. Are you going to run again sometime? I'll probably, there's a really good chance I'll run in uh, 2020. Oh, great. Yeah, I haven't made anything definite yet, but... Uh-huh. Um, you yeah. heard, it's, you it's, heard it's, it here, folks. He might run in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me, let me uh, have a Joe Biden flub right now. And, there you uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's a possibility. I mean, you know, there's always yeah. an election coming up. And that's one of the things that kept me going. Like the heartbreak of the presidential election was devastating. Yes. But what I did was focus all my energy and turn it into my local campaign. Mm-hmm. And then... The day after I lost in my primary, I focused all my attention on just getting Sharon in. Yeah. And at the end of the day, she did. And what that tells me is there's always hope. You know, never give mm-hmm. up, never surrender. <laughs> uh. <laughs> when, when I asked if you felt like being autistic had helped you deal with the disappointment, I think what I'm wondering is, did that hyper-focus help you to move past, like once you'd made the decision, okay, I'm going to help this other candidate. I feel like once that I have gone, okay, that sucked, boo-hoo-hoo, I'm going to eat a bunch of chocolate and play video games and regroup. But then once I'm ready to go in another direction, like I am all in at that point and very rarely look back. You know, I've never thought of it about it that way, but now looking back, I know a lot of my friends mm-hmm. who were in funk for months, months after the election. Yeah. And that November, December, January, friends were just, you know, devastated. But yeah. I had a different focus. Mm-hmm. I was taking the reins over myself and jumping into the fray. And I guess you're right. That hyper focus really helped me block out all of all of the horrible stuff that was coming yeah. along, right? All, all of the terrible possibilities and the spiraling into depression mm-hmm. kind of thing. So yeah, I never really thought about it. But uh, I mean, that's, that is definitely a solid explanation for how I was able to just tune all the, the bad stuff out for those few months. And keep your eyes on the next step. Because I think, you know, we get a lot of criticism for that. So when I'm suffering a disappointment or going through something difficult, I feel like my ability to hyper-focus on something like a video game 
allows me to get some distance from difficult emotions that I would normally be hyper-focusing on if I hadn't deliberately switched where I had put that laser gaze. You know, that's something that I'd like to see more autistic people take pride in, that, that we can do this you know, this amazing trick with our minds. You know, don't get me wrong, like I had my burnout times and my meltdowns and all of that. And there are times when we cannot hyper-focus. It's mm-hmm. just not possible. My only worry is when we when we focus too much, we forget to actually deal and process with those emotions. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be a give and take. And for me, it's knowing that at some point, I have to come back to reality because when I was younger, I'd say in my early 20s, I would just escape for days and not deal with very important right. things happening in my life. Right. And it was, you know, you, as you grow and as you mature, you yeah. understand there's a balance there. But uh, yeah, being able to just tune everything else out and focus, it's one of our great innate abilities. There's a great quote. Uh, did you ever did you ever watch a TV show called Legend of the Seeker? No. It's from a Terry Goodkind series called Wizard's Rule. And there's a great quote in it. The wizard is teaching the new warrior um, how, to, how to fight with a sword in battle. And he tells him, forget what was and ignore what will be. Focus only on the task at hand. And it's a quote that I have on my Facebook, my personal Facebook page it really reminds me that you can get lost thinking about everything that led up to this moment Mm -hmm. and worrying about what's going to happen next and lose the ability to really put your energy into the thing that you're doing right now. And and we can get over analytical. There's no question about that and obsess over things that we said at a party five years ago. So yep. that's a trap to stay out of. So my my um my emphasis on being present, especially for uh, autistics, to let go of that other stuff, mm-hmm. uh, really came to the forefront of my skill set when I started doing improv. So I started doing improv when I was a teenager in high school, and I've been doing it 20 years. I still perform regularly, at least once a month, if not more so. After a few years of doing it, I ended up teaching it. And then after a few years of teaching it, I started to develop a class where I taught autistic teenagers, specifically improv, because it works so well for me as a teenager. When I came up with the idea and started to form a concept around it, uh, I found that there were already a bunch of other theaters doing this around the country, the first and foremost being the Hideout Theater in Austin, Texas. From there, they branched out. The original teacher there went to Indianapolis and started a school, Indiana University, right near Bloomington. And there's all these theaters cropping up around the country and known theaters, Second City in Chicago. They've got an autism spectrum improv class. I started doing it here with Second City in L.A., and we're branching out all over. Um, I'm currently a main stage player at Comedy Sports. And Comedy Sports is a franchise. They've got a, a team in 30 different cities around the country. And a lot of those individual cities are now taking that class on. And it's just become this amazing tool for all kinds of different groups. There's a, a really popular improv for anxiety class in Chicago. There's improv for disabled students, I think, in I want to say Seattle area. If you would tell our listeners a little bit about Yes And and 
how has that affected like your decision-making process, your interactions with other people? Do you feel like it's a useful concept for autistics? Because I found it to be incredibly helpful just for navigating my own life. Absolutely. The very concept of yes and as a major tenant of improv, it's the idea that whatever is given to you, however absurd or ridiculous, you as an improviser on stage can say yes to it, right? You can accept mm-hmm. it for what it is and even build on top of it and say, well, if that's the ridiculous thing that you're giving me, I'm going to include something similarly ridiculous and fit it into whatever scenario you're giving me, mm-hmm. which it turns out on stage to be, hey, uh, I'm a pirate who has a, a, a hot air balloon. Oh, that's great. I love pirates with hot air balloons. Mine is made out of steel so that your hook can't penetrate the balloon. Oh, well, <laughs> my steel balloon uh, doesn't float in the air. It actually sinks to the bottom of the ocean. I'm an underwater hot air balloon pirate. So <laughs> the back and forth of that yeah. is so much more ridiculous than you could possibly imagine. However, it like completes a train of thought and just gets funnier as you come up with it. And that was all just improvised off the top of my head just now. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're saying yes and to somebody, I mean, the alternative is no but. And exactly. when I study Shakespeare, you know, you're reading these texts and there's a lot of disagreement of, well, what does this word mean? Well, what does that word mean? And there's a tendency among scholars of every kind to want to pick the one right answer. But when you read Shakespeare with a yes and philosophy, then you're understanding the puns and the layers. And pretty much every word in Shakespeare can be interpreted in, it seems like, limitless ways. And so when you approach even something like Shakespeare with a yes and philosophy, you just discover so much more. You open up your mind to finding real jewels in it. And it was such a liberation for me to move from no but to yes and. And that went throughout my whole life. I mean, even in terms of me getting along with my husband better, mm-hmm. instead of me thinking, well, I don't quite like the way this discussion is going, but instead of me jumping in and going, well, no, but, 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 I can say, well, yeah, I can see that. And <laughs> also, I don't think we should spend all our money on that particular thing right now. What, you know, whatever the discussion was. I mean, you- you'll find that improvisers who have been doing this for decades mm-hmm. have incorporated the yes and philosophy into their daily lives. How do you um, feel like it's because you're a parent? And mm-hmm. do you feel like it makes it easier to be? kind of a more open and loving parent to your child? Being open and loving, that's a choice every parent has to make. My ability to teach and interact with my son is greater because of improv. Mm -hmm. Um, And in addition, we just play improv games from day one. Because I'm a natural improviser, I've been doing it for so long, Mm -hmm. I, I was a teacher for many years, that I've already incorporated that into my parenting style. What I've noticed is that, you know, he's, he'll be seven in two days. I've been doing this for seven years. 
I now do it with people that I meet on the street and mm-hmm. I'll do it in my politics. Mm-hmm. What I didn't realize I was doing when I was running for city council and, and now today when I work in disability rights and work in the county and state legislation, I talk to legislative bodies, I talk to other politicians and candidates, I play improv games with them. I don't you know, consciously think about it, but that is part of me, so I just do it automatically. Folks respond to that, not yeah. just candidates and politicians, but regular people yeah. realize that I'm not, I'm not saying no to them. I'm not ignoring what they're asking or what they want. I'm accepting their needs as given, and I'm giving them solutions. I'm giving them other policies that interact with what they're asking for. I'm giving them resources to reach out and help with whatever problems they're given. It's a way of life for me and people respond to it. And I know dozens and dozens of improvisers who I've been friends with for years who do the same thing. And, and when you ask somebody about that person, they say always the same stuff. Oh, they're so great to talk to. They're mm. so open and honest. One of the really good parts of improv that I enjoy is the philosophy of truth in comedy. You can't be funny if you're not telling the truth. And improv really, really sharpens the mind into the framework of truth. It keeps you from telling lies or Mm -hmm. fabricating falsehoods. Mm -hmm. And the people you meet who do improv are just blatantly honest because they know that it's it's a better way of communicating, being all on the same page. And, and it's, it, it's a powerful, powerful change in that person that you see when they go through the improv classes, when they go through that training yeah. and they become better and better at it. Yeah. I love it. I, I would recommend anybody to take an improv class. A lot of people think improv is for performers, right? Oh, I'm sure. going to be an actor. I'm going to be a comedian. Sure. I'll tell you the best improvisers I know. One of my best friends, Mookie, He's an improviser in Indiana, and he's a museum tour guide. Oh, that right? makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He loves archaeology. He studied dinosaurs and fossils. You know, that's what he went to school for. That's what he got his mm-hmm. degrees in. And he gives tours at the Children's Museum in Indianapolis, and he's the number one tour guide. Oh, bet. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know? Of I have course. another friend, Kevin O'Shea, who works at Apple, and mm-hmm. he's on... I don't know what he's doing now, design team or lead something. He's like one of their top supervisors and stuff. And people love working with him because he knows how to bring a team together. He has team cohesiveness. These are engineers. These are, you know, paleontologists. These are not actors. They're not performers. Kindergarten teachers and delivery drivers. And, (laughs) and, you know, you're in Portland? Yeah. You should check out Portland Comedy Sports. Okay, I will. Yeah, tell Patrick Short, the owner of Portland Comedy Sports, okay. that I said hello. Okay. Say, uh, hey, Patrick, um, my name is Rachel, and Constantine said you could uh, get me a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll say that'll be $20 or whatever it is. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he'll say, for you, full price. I guarantee you that's the bit he'll say. He'll respond with, for you, full price. <laughs> <laughs> so I I love comedy. And I mean, to the point where like, 
I cannot watch sad movies. I can't watch scary movies because they stick in my head too much and they're just there forever. And so by default, I end up looking for a lot of comedy and I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts. I, I watch a lot of stand up. Unfortunately, there's a lot of stand up where I watch for the first two minutes and I go, nope, not for me. This is horrible, whatever. It's sexist, it's right. transphobic, it's it's whatever, you know, ableist, whatever it is. Cool. Fortunately, sure. I, I see that changing and there's a lot of discussion I know in the comedy world about all that. Punching down is exactly. a huge topic of discussion in the comedy world right now. So let's talk about what punching down means. So for those of your listeners who aren't involved in the stand-up or the comedy world or the improv world, when you are given a platform to make people laugh, Say, if you're on stage and you have a microphone, or if you're writing a film and you're on a TV show or whatever it is, and the goal of your entertainment is for laughter. One common trick is to take a shot at somebody who is not you, right? A very right. standard comedic routine is self-deprecation, right? You make fun of yourself. Sure. That's very common. And, and most comics know that that is fair game. Make fun of yourself right. all day long. And then you're um, safe. Yeah. The yeah. Exactly. You're always safe doing that because yeah. you are you. One other trope is to make fun of somebody else, right? Another right. person, another group, set of individuals who do a certain thing or act a certain way. 50, 60, 70 years ago, any group was fair game. And if you were not a member of that group, you would laugh at them and say, ha, oh, that is funny. That is how that person does it. Right. What we as a liberal democracy have decided in our collective consciousness is that when we do those strikes at groups, what does not rest comfortably in our hearts is taking a shot at a group that is oppressed or historically oppressed or specifically oppressed by a group that the puncher is a member of, right? Got it. If you make fun of a specific race and that race is historically known to be oppressed, it doesn't sit well with us as a group. The, the more accepted trope is the opposite, punching up. So right. Donald Trump, for example, everyone <laughs> loves to make fun of Donald Trump. Or and Jeff, Jeff Bezos. We can or pick Jeff on, Bezos. We can, let's pick on Jeff Bezos because everybody hates Jeff Bezos and it's not political. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> so um, when, when, we well, heard, when we heard that there might be dick pics of Jeff Bezos available for viewing. We all thought that was hilarious. Right. right. Well, because he's wealthy. He's exorbitantly wealthy. Yes. He's a healthy individual. Yes. Um, he, you know, has all the privilege in the world. And the yes. idea that somebody making fun of him in any capacity would lower his status is hilarious because it's never going to happen. Just in and so, of itself, that's funny. Yeah, it's right. True. Right. You know, uh, traditional examples are like Elon Musk and, you right. know, so that's, uh, all those things. So that's what we call punching up, right? Punching up, yeah. And punching the opposite up. would be making fun of folks of a certain race or a disability, women, any one of the LGBTQ community, victims of any kind of crime. These are things that they don't sit well with mm -hmm. an audience member when they hear it. They may right. um, hear it and maybe surprising. Mm -hmm. And obviously, surprise definitely elicits laughter from a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. But afterwards, walking away from that joke, you would think, wait, what does he mean by that? Is that really cool? And yeah. there's like this weird, queasy feeling you get in your tummy 
a lot of folks don't know what that queasy feeling is. And so they don't understand punching up or punching down. And so they just, they laugh it off. And so later when people say, hey man, that's not funny. The folks who laughed at it say, no, it is funny because I laughed. And there's a difference there because in theory, yes, you did laugh, but that's not why you didn't laugh because it was funny. That's because it was surprising. It was new. It created an internal tension, which the punchline released. That's exactly. like the most the most mechanical way that you can look at it. I do think it's, it's interesting that. that that the language for making a joke better already was to punch up a joke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that there's that's a funny. Pun- like that. <laughs> and that there's a punchline and all that. So. I think Uh that comedy has always been best when it was punching up. And that's why when you have people like Jon Stewart, who are absolute masters of the punching up, Mm -hmm. and how he did that night after night after night is a miracle to behold. So one of the things that I notice when I listen to podcasts and to comedians, now that I understand that I'm autistic, and now that I can kind of recognize it sometimes in other people, I have Mm -hmm. to wonder if we, all of us autistics, got in a spaceship and went to some amazing planet somewhere that we felt comfortable and adored, would there be any comedians left on planet Earth at all? (laughs) (laughs) Is autism a requirement for being funny? (laughs) No, I know a lot of folks who are absolutely hilarious who are nowhere near the spectrum. And really funny in their own way. All right. All right. Um, Yeah. I mean, comedy, comedy is universal. That's it's one of those things where if you get it, you get it. It's absolutely a learned behavior. Like Uh we have an innate ability to laugh at stuff, but it is definitely a, a cultural and experiential aspect of a person's life. It's who they are, who they grew up to be, the choices they made, how they dealt with pain, anguish, loss. And that creates a comedian. There's no barrier to that being neurodivergent. There's no difference in how you get to that path. I know plenty of autistics, neurotypicals, folks, uh, who are kinetic, which is ADHD, folks, multiple personalities, and right. all of that stuff, who are just absolutely hilarious. So do you and feel like... In their life, they've taken those steps. Do you feel like a certain level of neurodivergence is helpful in terms of being funny? Or is it more that people who've had difficult things in their lives and they've had to work through them and find ways to get past them... And that some of those strategies involved being funny, that just happens to intersect with a lot of people who've had to deal with some trauma, which has led to neurodivergence. No, no, it definitely be. And I'll give you the clearest cut example. The more privileged, the more wealthy and living in a bubble and never having adversity a person has had in their life, mm-hmm. the less funny they are. People who, comedy comes from pain and yeah. that tragedy and how we deal with it because many people deal with it in different ways. Some right. people become more em- empathetic. You know, Some people become more compassionate. Some people become angrier. Some people become resistant to others. And, and you know, how we deal with tragedy and trauma and loss really changes uh, who we are as people. And there is a, a very tangible change that you see in some folks who just become funny. 
For yeah. them, the outlet is laughter. It's making other people laugh. It's laughing at things themselves. And that's the path they take. And that's what makes a comedian. Mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Well, let's see. Is, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our audience? Oh, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of stuff I could talk about all day. Um, one of my, one of my uh, closing, my closing arguments for the judge and society is that judge to tell folks in the neurodiversity community, those people who are neurodivergent, that's the words we use, that there are people like myself and Rachel and other listeners of this podcast that we're out there and we accept you for who you are. Never think that you are alone or lost in this. Um, We're waiting to find you and we're actively looking for you. You're part of our tribe. You're part of our community. You're a member of our family. And we love you exactly the way that you are. So come find us. Well, that's beautiful, Constantine. And, And I can't think of anything to add to that. I would love to have you come back and talk again sometime. It was such a joy and a pleasure to get to talk to you finally. Of course. Thank you for having me on. This is fantastic. Oh, my pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, Rachel.